Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Happy New Year. Today we're going to kick in the first show of 2020 with an interview recently conducted by my colleague Patrick Doyle with the Black Keys, and that's Dan Auerbach and Patrick Carney. And they talked about the Keys' whole career. They're back after a three-year break with a new album. And there's a lot in there, so let's get right to it. People are saying that you guys are better performers now than, than you ever were. We have a street team on YouTube <laughs> <laughs> commenting for us. Yeah. Actually, Dan sent me a link after, I think we played Toronto, and he sent me a link <laughs> from a, a clip of us playing low high that night. And the, there was one comment, and it said, I'm so glad I didn't come to your show <laughs> uh, because you would have ruined the song for me. I myself have a band and cover the song. And there's just so many nuances to the yeah, song. Yeah, you said you're really not doing justice, though. <laughs> you said doing oh, justice really? to our own song. I was like, this is, this is exactly what's wrong with the world today, <laughs> yeah. is that this fucking idiot has a voice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think this is basically like David from The Office, the, or whatever, Steve David Brandt? Yeah, yeah, from The Office, leaving comments on motherfuckers' YouTube page. <laughs> Tell me about the first time you, you got into the room together and plugged in after five years, that basically five years that you hadn't uh, played together after playing together for so long. Well, let's just get that piece of information straight. It was three years okay. that we took a break. Right. Our last show together was at Outside Lands yeah. um, in San Francisco in 2015. And within a couple of weeks, Dan was on the road with the ARCs. Mm-hmm. And... That went. That lasted about a year, and, and then he went into a solo record, and we basically took three years off yeah, of the keys, yeah. which is I don't think that crazy. No, you know what I mean. And people like asking if we had broken up or something. Really, we just for the first time took a normal person's break. Yeah, it's yeah. weird because well, you Google the Black Keys, the first thing is like, have the Black Keys broken up? Right. Well, that's also our interns just trying to build up <laughs> our street team out there working. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we took a break for the first time, and uh, because you got to remember, within for, between 2014 and 2002, we made eight albums. Yeah, just 12 years. I mean, that's I don't know. That's like a lot of records. Yeah, that's more than most bands get to make. You know, but when we decided to get back and make another record, yeah, we came back here in September of 2018, and we hadn't been in the studio together in probably five years. Mm-hmm. But uh, we we learned how to do this together. You know, so when we sat down. But we'd also been working yeah. constantly. I know. I know. So when Pat showed up, like his drums were set up, like he had all new drums, all new stuff. Everything was like he'd really been fine tuning everything, mm-hmm. and and I'd been doing the same thing with all the guitar stuff. So when we sat down, we were so ready to go. Yeah, almost more so than we'd ever been. It was just like we didn't even have to talk about anything. We just started making music instantly, pretty much. Yeah. Well, we were talking about um, Keith Richards, and in his book, he says that he will put down his instrument for sometimes years at a time, mm-hmm. and because when he picks it up, he knows that that he'll he get has something. Yes, to hang out with his bandmates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, are you more creative when you haven't played for that long? Uh, I've never not played for that long. Yeah, I've always I'm always playing in some sort yeah. of way, I guess. Yeah. You know? A friend of mine just had surgery, a major surgery, abdominal surgery, and he's a drummer. Yeah. So he can't, we couldn't play for like four weeks. He said that was the longest break he's ever taken. And he's going to play again, t- actually today. His doctor said he was allowed to. And I was like, I was like well, I, I've gone, definitely gone months at a time without playing the drums. Mm-hmm. And when I do sit down to play, I approach it differently. Mm-hmm. When I broke my shoulder, I had to stop playing for four months. So when I finally sat down, I realized, like, I think 
I just played a little bit better. Yeah. Couldn't do much of this extra strenuous movement, so I just was playing more simply. And I, I don't know, I thought it was better. In, in one of the, the early Rolling Stone stories, you went on a, a riff about how you don't consider yourself a good drummer. Is that true? Do you really believe that? I mean, I don't consider myself a technical drummer. Uh-huh. You know, like I, could, I think I'm a good drummer, but I don't think I'm a, you know, like a drummer, like a true drummer guy that would come up here like banging on everything doing yeah. and being able to do like I play like 4-4 four, four beats yeah. and I, I, I don't know that's what I do Dan what, what is I mean you, you have played with a lot of different drummers what is it's, what's special about playing with Pat he's musical yeah he doesn't he's not like a drummer drummer he just yeah. he, he approaches it differently and he always has mm-hmm. and when we were starting you know I mean there's just more space when it's just a he's only playing with me mm-hmm. so he can fill up more space. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to like. I don't know. He just kind of was able to be a little bit more free, I guess. And he's always been like that. Set. I mean, he sets up his drums differently than other drummers. You know. Mm-hmm. I learned to play drums almost specifically to play with Dan. You know what I mean? It was right. not like something I sat up to like learn how to do. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that like the sound guy on stage has put Pat's floor tom on the other side of the drum kit, and he's mm-hmm. like, "No, I put it over here." Really? Yeah. <laughs> To this day, like, so like, how do you mic your drums up in stereo? I'm like, mm, I just don't do that. I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we truly learned to play music together, and you know, but the last five years, Dan's right, we have spent a lot of time working on other people's music, producing stuff, writing stuff with other people. Listening. So, doing, listening. doing a lot of mm-hmm. listening. Yeah. Uh, reassessing yeah. stuff that... Oh, yeah. That maybe you know, just going back and paying attention to stuff. So yeah, when we when we started making this record, it came pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only the only thing we had to figure out as far as the band was was how to uh, make it functional without being like so uh, time consuming that we wouldn't be able to do the things that we want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like figure out how to tour without having to go play eighty five, hundred and ten shows a year or whatever. Yeah, you said it that last show in San Francisco that you guys were fried and there was a podcast and you were like, I don't even know if that might be our last show. We weren't sure. We did. I mean, I, I was pretty sure we weren't going to just stop making music, but we just, at that point we couldn't, we just knew we needed to not do it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Not not, not make music, but just get away from all the all of it. That whole summer was like crazy. Just think about it. Dan had a baby. Mm-hmm. We went to Europe like four times. Mm-hmm. We did the, like, can't, we just were doing random weekends of festivals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was fun, but it was also like, there was no, that was an off year, and we did like 25 shows, and it ate up the whole summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're like trying to work on a record or something, you, there's no, you know, it's hard to find like a two or three week gap. Yeah. Where there's nothing getting in the way constantly. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we, we, we fig- I think we figured out how to do it, for at least for now. During the break, did you guys like miss each other, or what was it like? <laughs> I mean, we'd start texting. Yeah, yeah we stayed in touch. We were texting. Yeah, yeah. We probably were a six-month period where we didn't really communicate much, but mm-hmm. I mean, you have to remember, I mean, from 2002 until 2015, we were, there was one year where Dan put out a solo record in 2009, and that was like a year where we took a break. Right. But in that year where we took a break, we made a hip-hop record, right. we made Brothers, we played probably 40 shows, yeah. but that was like a slow year. So even yeah. every year, we had been working together yeah. nonstop. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I learned on this break, too. One of them was just how fucked up the music industry is. 
when you end up working on something that you're proud of and just trying to get figure out how to like in other words like Dan and I have it kind of easy because we're motivated together to work mm -hmm. so even when we didn't have a good record deal or anything we would still just get in the van and make it fucking happen mm -hmm. absolutely yeah I mean we, we lost money all the time really yeah I mean we drove from Akron to New York City to open up for a ska band for $50 uh -huh. and then we drove right back to Akron we didn't even stay in New York <laughs> Yeah, we were playing. You we, stay for the Scott band? We were playing Barclays. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I think we had to because we had to wait to get paid. <laughs> yeah, we, it was right. It was like four blocks from the Barclays. Wow. It was our first show in New York. Wow. Yeah, we drove eight and a half hours and then played and then drove eight and a half hours straight back. Wow. <laughs> but it was really nice. I mean, that's like. I was, you know, I'm talking to certain new bands and like trying to figure out how to do it. And I was just like, man, like. We would just sleep in a fucking minivan. Yeah. <clears throat> the car on the cover of El Camino. That's not the actual one, but yeah, it's the same year model. Right. It's a 94 Plymouth. Mine was navy blue with the wood trim. We strapped stuff to the top on our first tour. Really? Yeah, I brought <laughs> enough clothes for like six months. Yeah, I remember when we went to and go... And I'm like, wait, I'm not going to need all these, I don't think. When we went to go... I, my brother came, we went to go pick him up, and Dan had, like, this bag. We were like, dude... Like, I brought a duffel bag. It was, like, stood up, like, that tall. We were like, no, bro. <laughs> but my brother and I, were, our parents were divorced. We had to switch houses every week. We were like, no, man, you need, like, a third of that. <laughs> but also, that's, like, when you're, like, eight, 21, like, I don't know how... I certainly didn't pack enough socks, because at one point, like, I was wearing the same socks for four days, and... We made Michael, Pat's brother, just get rid of his socks. Yeah. We really? had to vacate them. <laughs> we, they literally hung them on a tree like an ornament. They were In Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> what was the heart longest drive you guys ever did? Uh, we did a, we've done a couple of long drives that were for the record books. Mm -hmm. for, uh, we did a straight through overnight. Well, it was a full day, really, 24 hours, Austin to Akron. That was after the second time we played South by Southwest. And mm -hmm. We went down there and... It was such a waste of fucking time. Yeah, why? I mean, the first time we went to South by Southwest, it was 2003. Mm -hmm. And we had our second record coming out like a couple weeks later. And we went there and we got like a, we met a promoter in Australia who had just taken us over there. Mm -hmm. um, BT. We got free Levi's. We got free Levi's. <laughs> we played the fader for it for eight people. <laughs> uh, like all this fake news bullshit. Uh, <laughs> We played all these shows, and ultimately what we got of it was like a uh, write-up in the enemy saying that we were opiate addicts. Really? But we did get this Australian tour, which ended up with this, met this guy, BT, who ended up becoming a really close friend and mm -hmm. But really, like, we got what we could of yeah. out of there. Yeah, and um, we went back the second year, and it was just like there's nothing there for us. And we could tell pretty quickly that it was just a complete waste of time. Yeah. And uh, so that's why we did a 24-hour drive straight through because we just wanted to get the fuck home. Jesus. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that one thing you learned in the five-year, three-year break is how fucked up the music business is now. Uh, can you, what, what did you mean when you said that? Well, I meant specifically, like, there's always someone there that has to, there's a gatekeeper everywhere, you know what I mean? Yeah. You think at some point, like, you can get past that mm -hmm. aspect, of, and you should be able to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you work on a record, and I, I'd say at this point, like, we've made enough records between the two of us and on our own to know what the fuck we're doing, mm -hmm. that you'd think that it would be easy when you make something you're proud of to get, like, a label to get behind it. And it's not that easy. Right. So that's like, it remind, so it reminds me, it just reminds me that 
when we, our whole career has been kind of like, even when we haven't been able to find a label, we would just, or, or find a situation that worked for us, we would still just work. We'd be able to figure it out somehow. Well, you had major people coming after you uh, for your first record, or your second record, and, and you turned it down because you didn't want to really, uh, I mean, you had a bad feeling about it, it sounds like. You see, you wanted to go with Fat Possum. Well, we were being approached by like different labels. I mean, right when our first record came out, within two weeks, we got an email from some dude at Atlantic. Yeah. First A&R guy to reach out to us. And he's like, send me your album. And I was like, send me $10, bitch. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it was like we didn't have any money. We were li- I was like living in squalor. This guy's like li- an A and R guy in New York mm-hmm. City. Like fuck you, go mm-hmm. fuck about. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we've learned that first year. It was like it was like people kept coming out with this carrot, like dangling the carrot in front of us, but they didn't realize that like we were so malnourished that like, right. if we were to eat that carrot, we would like get, get sick. sick. Yeah. <laughs> we needed like something other than like fucking carrot. There's that. Like, a, like the difference between a thousand dollars and a hundred thousand dollars to us at that time was like mm-hmm. it was like the difference between I mean someone could have offered us a million dollars it would have been just as impressive as ten thousand dollars because we had no fucking money <laughs> wow <laughs> but I, I guess what we figured out pretty quickly like that the last thing we needed was a label that couldn't even issue us a contract within a period of time that they stated they could mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they wouldn't definitely wouldn't be able to put our record out right <clears throat> So we still went with that possum, which was like so comfortable for us because Matthew and Bruce are great dudes and really eccentric characters. And, you know, like the first record deal that we got like from them was for Mm $12,000 to make a record. That's like all the money. So um, we did it ourselves and, and pocketed the cash so we could pay our rent. Right. And in the meantime of like us getting that contract they were trying to sell us cars (laughs) like there's a 78 mercedes it's got like three or four bullet holes to the windshield i'll throw that i'll throw that in if we take 2500 off of the the contract bruce always had mercedes used mercedes but it was perfect for us because then it was like well our heroes were on that label right right i mean you know that was our biggest influence when we started like one of them was t-model and spam i mean it's like t-model ford yeah t-model ford and spam and he was on fat possum who was he for people who don't know he was a a musician from greenville mississippi and he played as a Mm two-piece electric guitar and drums and his drummer's name was spam uh-huh. And uh, they used to come through Cleveland all the time. Yeah. Used to see him. Yeah. But they had like, you know, R.L. Burnside, who we loved, and Junior Kimbrough, who we loved, and T-Model, and Hassel Atkins, mm-hmm. and just... And John Spencer Blues Explosion had right. done some stuff with mm-hmm. R.L. Right. Yeah. So it was like a no-brainer for us. Yeah. I mean, we'd sent Fat Possum our first demo, and they just never even responded. Yeah. But um, yeah, we were uh, stoked to be on the label. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. 
To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. So you guys grew up around the corner from each other, is that? Yeah, that like was? a block from each other, yeah. And what's your first memory of Pat? I mean, I think, I don't know, I remember him from the school bus, I yeah. think, or like, probably we throwing it. acorns or something. <laughs> we had this kid in the neighborhood I was friends with, he was in my grade, but he, Pat was younger. So, I was like of course, a, he got bullied. I was a mark. But this, my friend was like... He was like six foot five and, and like two hundred fifty pounds in, like in sixth grade. Sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was this kid that used to hang around the neighborhood. Uh, got arrested for killing someone as a cop. Really? He got off the hook, and then he got fired again for making like a prisoner dance for his food. That kid used to torment the shit out of me. <laughs> really? Yeah. He lived up the street. He lived up the street. Really? Uh huh. He lived, that's when we kind of. First met each other. It was getting like uh-huh. me and my brothers and some of the younger kids getting picked on by definitely not Dan, but by like some of the neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. But we would get together and trade baseball cards. And uh-huh. I was really wanted to be liked, so I would like I would put together deals that were really not in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> I was really popular for a couple of weeks. <laughs> right when I moved up there, they're like, "Yeah, Pat, yeah, bring your cards over, just hang out." <laughs> And, and is the first musical connection between you guys when Dan, you were playing in a, in a cover band and Pat came and recorded you? Is that a true story? Mm, it was before that. It was before that, I think. Okay. Yeah, no, that was a, that was just one of the times that we recorded our, our demo uh-huh. a little bit later on. Uh-huh. But before that, yeah, this is before I, I think it was before I played out in a bar. It was like before I was doing any of those gigs. It was definitely before that. Yeah. It was like really when we were just learning. Yeah. I just gotten my PV amp. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, same amp that T-Model played, you wow. know, and um, brought it down to Pat's house with my telly, and we we played. I've got recordings of, of that. What does it sound like? I mean, it kind of sounds just like we do now. Sort really? Of, but just like we just, it's a lot sloppier. Yeah. It sounds like it can fall apart at any second. Yeah. Yeah. It when, sounds like the Which is awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. like fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, is that when you found your sound, or did it take a lot to get your sound? No, it's always just right there. It was yeah. there, yeah, you can hear this thing, it's, just, it's very dynamic. But we always loved recording. I mean, Pat introduced me to the four track, but I was instantly fell in love with it. I mean, but it was like the idea of making tapes. Like, we just loved that, making CDs. You're right. Making shit sound fun. Making an album. Just love the idea of having an album. You know, we loved yeah. records so much, all we wanted to do was have a record. Right. You know, that's why... When we ended up doing our first record deal, I mean, we didn't even know what the deal said. We just kind of signed it, and like we were just excited to have a record. Right. Yeah, I, I remember looking at our first record deal and not really understanding anything, but understanding that it was that they weren't going to give us any money, mm-hmm. and that they would give us fifty records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that time it was like we were like we weren't planning on you know. We'd never played a show. We never even really knew we were going to play shows. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You guys are are amazing live band, but I mean, I don't know that we would even be a, a we wouldn't even be a band maybe if that guy hadn't put out our record. Yeah, Patrick Boisel. Yeah, we sent him a demo out of the blue. Yeah. He'd never met us, and he said, "Send me ten songs. I'll put out your record." And that's what started the Black Keys. Yeah, because we, before that, we didn't exist. We only created the name The Black Keys to put on the demos to mm-hmm, send mm-hmm. to the couple labels that we sent it out to. And there were only three labels that wrote back that wanted to do something. And it was Estrus, Chicken Ranch, and Austin, Texas. Estrus said if we, if we drove to Bellingham, that we Bellingham, would, Washington, yeah. The, they would take an audition, basically. <laughs> We've never left Ohio, so we're just... We're, yeah. do, do you think you would have started the band now with the music business being the way it is, with less opportunities now, or is it... Um, I mean, the way I look at the way, you know, the shit started for us, it was like, it was, it was at independent record stores. Yeah. There was no radio play for us. Our first big, meaningful piece of press came from actually Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. From a review on our first record, four-star review. Oh wow, Peter Relic wrote it. From Peter Relic. Yeah, who lives in Charleston. Oh really? I mean, I I wouldn't hesitate to start a band now. No, yeah. I just think it is. I think it's a good time now. I think it really? would probably be. It would be. Uh, you'd be ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the biggest mistake bands make is like looking for some big record deal that's going to get them radio play and all this kind of stuff. It just it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean. Like, even a band like The Strokes, who I, you know, like, such an exciting band. Like, when they first came out, it was, like, one of the more inspiring things and well-needed at the time because it was right after 9-11 like when that first record came out. And But leading up that summer before was, like, the lowest point of my adult life Why? up to that point. I just was unemployed. We were, it was fucking miserable. And I was, I got laid off and the economy in Akron was terrible. Mm-hmm. I hated school, Dan hated school, and that's the moment, that summer, 2001, end of the summer is when we accidentally started the band. Yeah. And at that same moment, like, The Strokes' first record just been, was coming out, and they never got played on the fucking radio, at least not in Ohio. It took forever for them to even go gold, even though everyone was talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. And I think that that is something that people lose sight of, is, like, that's really, like, and that's the, the most successful mm-hmm. type of alternative rock yeah. thing, you know what I mean? It's, it's never been about getting platinum or diamond albums in that genre. It's mm-hmm. about influencing. It's like the Ramones have one gold record. And it's yeah. Their greatest hits came out in the 90s. And that, that's because people were buying records then. Right. But how influential are the bands like that? The thing that I get frustrated about is that record labels lose sight of that themselves. They, don't, they, they forget sometimes that, like, you know, there's a big... There's a lot of musicians who are influenced by these bands and, like, Captain Beefheart or yeah. Tom Waits or whatever the fuck it might be, that, that for the most part, not super commercially viable entities. And I think that for Dan and I, music is the most important thing in our lives. It's changed our lives. Yeah. It's the thing that, like, Dan, like, like this is Dan's life. You're sitting in it. It's just all fucking music everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you go to my house, I have, my house is the same thing. I'm married to a woman, too. So life's the same way. It's yeah. all music. And so we view music like art. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that there's this way where, like, I also think that you should be, you should find a way, there's a path to be able to support yourself making your art. Of course, not everybody's going to be able to do it. And yeah. some people make terrible fucking art. Yeah. But I do think that that's, like, the hope as a kid is, like, maybe I have a band and, like, we could, like, tour, maybe pay our rent. Mm-hmm. Like, but, and even then, like, when we were teenagers, it was, like, kind of like you were considered, like, a 
fucking dick if you wanted to even make money off of your music. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that that's the confusing intersection here is that like we want support. We want to find like a way to like, I want to be able to turn on the radio and hear cool stuff, even if it's just like a small little independent station. Yeah. And I want to be able to support artists like that in a way that's like somewhat meaningful. Yeah. Um, and the success on that kind of stuff that we're in, in talking about is like, you know about people just supporting themselves, you know? And yeah. that's why when you go to have a meeting with like a big label, they're ultimately, they're only interested in stuff that might sell millions of copies or something. And that, that, yeah. that, to me, most of that shit's terrible, so. Yeah, when you turn on the radio, what do you think, pop radio? I mean, even when I was a kid, I hated pop radio. Yeah, really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I hear like Lionel Richie and I get fucking depressed. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, my dad's playing the Beatles and stuff. You yeah. know, I could tell it was like, it was terrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Dancing on the Ceiling is not a good song. I mean, right. I'm not an asshole for saying that. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, mm -hmm. in fact, I'd say, you know, I don't know. So, I don't so, grow up listening to that kind of stuff. Like, I would hear it, you know. I, saw, I went and saw Whitney Houston. Did you really? At, um, at Blossom Music Center with my mom. And what was it like? Moms are always getting in the way of dudes <laughs> music. <laughs> I remember we were, it was a, it was an amphitheater. We were in the grass, and yeah. I just remember... I could see like a little like neon green person jumping around on stage. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so when you guys put out Attack and Release, which was an incredible album that got a lot of attention, and then Brothers, and then you're in the world of pop music, and you're on we're not in the world of pop. We but, just, but we, you're on the MTV Video <laughs> Music Awards, and you're at we were on, we were like breakthrough video. You know what that is? That means like we're gonna try to utilize whatever kind of little clout this band has for a minute on YouTube. Yeah. To give them a fucking award. Well, but what, but what is it like when you're in that world and on that level with those people like, and talking to it's them? Like, and it's like you're, it's like you're like a, a spy in the middle of Russia, <laughs> like trying to not blow your fucking cover. Really? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, I love your sh music. It's great. Fucking love it. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I love that. I don't you're know. You're talking about like award shows specifically? Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering if you we guys did a video game award show one time. We met. Um, <laughs> Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. He really? was telling us how he used to run up and down the the East Coast playing rock and roll. Playing he, said, bass. Right, he was a he, musician, right? He said yeah. something like, these fingers never touched a fret. Or something like, he was like, he finally played a fretless bass. I was like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he was so nice. Really? So, very yeah. nice. Who are the weirdest people you met like that? That's, Hulk Hogan is like more important than... You know than, who we met yeah. one time in England was that guy with no teeth at the bar? Shane McGowan. Oh, I love, I love the Pogues. He was, he was rich. Yeah. Was yeah. He wasted. He looked like he was gonna melt. Honestly, yeah. it was like it he was, looked like a melted candle. <laughs> this was right. This was one of our first trips over to England, and we were at this place called the Boogaloo. <laughs> he did. And our tour manager was like tapped me on the shoulder, and I was like twenty. We were like twenty-three years old. Yeah. We were babies. And yeah. This guy was like, look next to you, and I was like, it was like. I got scared straight, like right there. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> yeah, like, he is drinking three drinks. He had a gin and tonic, a beer, and a white Russian. And it's actually like, if you watch the Alan Partridge show, it's a British show. Mm -hmm. He orders in the show this character, Alan Partridge. Yeah. Goes to the bar, is like, he, and he meets these two women, and he's like, what can I get you? And she's like, I'll have a gin and tonic. She said, I'll have a white Russian. And he's like, I'll, and he goes and orders himself a beer and these two drinks. 
right? Yeah. And he comes back and the girls are gone. So he just drinks them all together through three straws. All Brothers was all like slower songs than El Camino. You, it's an incredible record where you are, it's fast and like a Phil Spector record or something. I haven't listened to it in years. What, really? But I mean, can you tell me about the making of that record? Because that's just one of my favorite, favorite records of yours. We made that uh, here. Yeah. Some, right? Mostly? I don't know. El Camino? Yeah. It was all so done Brian? here. Brian? Real. All here, all February, March, April, 2011. Yeah. We were supposed to be in Australia we, for half of it. We canceled this tour and called Brian, like, all last minute, right mm -hmm. after we played SNL for the first time. Mm -hmm. Dan had just finished this spot. He had just finished it, like, a week before we started the record. Wow. And we came in and just... Really, we were just decompressing from the road because we've been on the road all. We year. were at road speed. Yeah. Yeah, so and that's the what it sounds tempos like. Tempos are fast, right? Yeah. But it's great. That's yeah. why it's great. Mm -hmm. And you still play a lot of those songs live now. What well, I means that because you guys were going so. Fast. We were on tour so much. Yeah. We were definitely in the mood to try to come up with some songs that we could play. Yeah. That we could add to the set. It's yeah. like all singles in a great way. Yeah, I don't. And I feel like the new record is a combination of all of that, like everything that you guys have done. Like there's some turn blue kind of stuff and there's some stuff that's like El Camino and you guys have sort of a full sounding record. Mm -hmm. What did you want to do with this record? We wanted to not overthink it. Yeah. We didn't really talk about it, but we just started with just drums and guitar and then yeah. we kind of finished six songs or so and then we, didn't, we hadn't added any other instruments. So we just decided then to just keep it guitar and drums and bass and just simple yeah i don't know i think we were probably in a similar frame of mind as we were when we made el camino to be mm -hmm. honest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we were kind of like ready to you know play some rock and roll and turn blue is such an interesting record you don't have another one that sounds like it and it's i think for real a lot of real fans that love that record mm -hmm. and i'm just curious how do you look back on it honestly i don't remember anything about it Why? except well, I remember being in California recording it, but uh -huh. I don't remember anything else about it, to be oh, honest. Really? I mean, I'd have to go back and listen to it. Okay. I'd need a refresher. You bet, yeah. But I mean, you know, we toured for how many years and played the songs how many times, and then when we got back together for rehearsals, like, I had no idea how to play any of our songs again. I, I, I needed to be reminded. Yeah. They came back quick, but like... Yeah. Yeah. So if someone put you in a room and said, "Can you play?" Play? <clears throat> no, I mean we hired some. We hired our, you know guys who play with us, and they learned. Them. Like, yeah, you guys have to learn these songs. And we're like, "How does this?" Go? <laughs> yeah. Wow. We've always done it that way, though. To be honest. Yeah. Because we've never been that band that like sets up and like rehearses. You mm -hmm. know, like mm -hmm. it just isn't. We don't rehearse. You know, we don't rehearse. We don't. It's like it's like Kenny Powers when he says, "I don't want to be the best at working out." <laughs> Like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like that's kind of how we've looked at it. <laughs> Rubber Factory. I mean, that the place that you recorded that album is <laughs> the, the vibe you got out of that is, is wild. Yeah, that was just a old the old General Tire factory. Yeah, the second floor. That's where all offices were. The first floor had like the forty foot ceilings mm -hmm. where they would they were like melting down mm -hmm. metal mm -hmm. below us. Yeah. That's why we didn't. It was always warm in the studio in the winter time because they would melt. They were melting like steel bullets. It was so weird, actually. When I think back about it, it's almost like there's this... It was know, depressing as hell. There's this soap opera called Man, Passions. Dude. We used to go to this... What's that? We used to go to that restaurant every day. The Lamp Post. The Lamp Post Diner, and it was this guy and his mom there. And no one else was ever there. There's one guy that was kind of like a human adult pig pen that was just covered in filth and drove <laughs> this dirty truck. Did you remember this guy? Jake Jeepers Creepers? Yeah. He was kind of there, too. Not Never to say anything. Dude, can Weird. you imagine looking at the what was on those plates right now? 
dude, when I'm thinking back, back about this, is being in that building, it was my, it's almost like, dude, there's a show, a soap opera called Passions, which yeah. like, I completely forgot about. Someone's like, you should look at this clip on YouTube, and it was like this doll coming to life. And like, what the fuck is this? This is like familiar, like I've seen this. It's like so fucking scary, I can't handle it. Yeah. But it was like, we were in this giant building, and there were holes in the floor. You look, remember that? You can look down through the floor, there's stacks of tires, like mm-hmm. Al Capone's vault. No one in this building, a million square feet. No one there. Dude, toxic chemicals everywhere, asbestos. And wh- everywhere. How did you wind up recording it? Because it was the only place we could afford. Oh. Because we just had like a couple hundred dollars coming in every every few weeks from playing shows. The smart thing would have for us to have bought mm-hmm. a little cheap house or something, but we didn't have that kind of. We didn't have, even have a couple thousand dollars, I don't think, yeah. to do that. But or the smarts. The smarts. <laughs> what could you have not? prepared for when he with success. I mean, because I was watching that thing and we were talking about Billy Corgan and he said he had no one to talk to once they got Yeah, because he didn't give any of this publishing to his band. And yeah. fucking hated him. Like, yeah. he, of course he had no one to talk to. He was a fucking greedy prick. I don't know. Yeah. I, guess. Uh, I mean, Ooh. honestly, the hardest thing is that when I say something like that, it's, it maybe... It, God it, damn it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, you got... That's the thing about a band is this. It's, it's like, this is the problem. Yeah. It is. A, it's a shared community. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. If Dan and I make a song, sometimes Dan makes like ninety-eight percent of the song. Yeah. You know I mean, what we share the publishing in a way that is not ninety-eight percent in his favor. Yeah. You know I mean, sometimes when we plan a business move, it's like ninety-eight percent my idea. Right. But it is set up in a way where it's not that way. It is a community thing. Yeah. Where you're working together for the greater good of things when you're doing a drive and yeah. Dan sleeps at night and I I drive at night yeah. that's a band it is a very unique partnership yeah. you know what I mean so throughout all, this entire experience like the most important thing is that Dan and I feel like we're both being fair to each other mm-hmm. and that's called respect right. you know what I mean and that can make a relationship lasts like a long, long time. So whatever I just say with Billy Corgan, it was a joke. Right. But it is like a band will fall apart the right. minute that respect level disintegrates. Right. And the worst thing you can do is not treat... If someone's getting financially rewarded in a way that outweighs the rest of the band, that band will implode. Yeah. It is a fucking known fact. Yeah. Any manager should recognize that. Any band should be taught that if... that Because you can accomplish so much more as a band because there's a mythology behind a band. You know what I mean? Like like when Trey Anastasia goes plays, he plays the Ryman. When Fish plays, they play the Bridgestone. Yeah. Because there's this history, there's this thing, there's like this, there's more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So I think to answer your question about what I wasn't expecting with success, I still am not used to the idea that I can pay for like shit yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Blows my mind. Yeah, you know what I mean. So the tour is you're about a month in, and what is it? What does it feel like to be up there every night after a month of pretty heavy touring? It feels amazing. Yeah, it really almost feels better than ever. Really? Yeah, I don't. It's just like I don't know. We've just kind of settled into the playing, and and it just feels really good. Yeah, I don't know. I agree. I think it feels better than it ever has. Really? Mm -hmm. Especially better than yeah. Yeah. I know that seems crazy, but and, and it so, really does. I don't know what it is. It's just having a couple of those old Ohio friends there mm-hmm. and, you know, just the way that we're able to play on stage with the three guitars, drums, and bass. It's just like extra black keys for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. 
what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if you look at the touring um, Polestar top tours, it's like Elton John, the Rolling Stones, and Springsteen. There's you guys, but like a lot of them are like over seventy. Like, what's what's it going to be like in ten years? Well, they keep making the kind of money they're making. They're going to be over eighty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is it going to be like in fifteen or twenty years? Like, what? Who? It'll, you guys will be touring, and you know what? I would I would pay a lot of money to see Led Zeppelin play. Do you think they they would, would do it again? I don't know, yeah. but I, I I think that also I'd pay money to see. I saw Elton John a couple of times. I'm not even like a huge Elton John fan for sure. I didn't grow up. My dad didn't really listen to him much, but I yeah. still love his, his show. And Roy Stone's show is still good. And I think it is like, who knows what? Hopefully, hopefully when we're uh, 25 years from now, people still come see us. And that is our show for today. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a a nice review on iTunes. That is always appreciated. Even if you leave a mean, crazy one, I'll read that too. But as always, thanks for listening. Happy New Year, and we will see you next week. Bye.